Hey, just as you're finding your way back to your seat, just as, as we were worshiping too, I just felt the Holy Spirit just impressing on my heart that, that, uh, that there was somebody here tonight and, and just along the lines of what Hannah was sharing, you're, just, you're experiencing frustration. Uh, in your journey, in your life as a devoted follower of Christ, just with the progress that you're making, the change that you envision that hasn't come. And I just felt like God wants to say to you tonight that, that while there is a process to discipleship, there's also a pace to discipleship. And it's our responsibility to be faithful in the process, but then we have a responsibility, as Hannah was sharing, to be patient, to be patient in the pace to be patient in the pace. And they, both Pastor David and Hannah mentioned pathways tonight. If those are new concepts to you, there's a little green booklet in the back. It's free to you that talks about discipleship, how you can go on a journey, uh, how you can be faithful in that process, how you can be intentional about what, it, what are we supposed to do day in and day out as a devoted follower of Christ. But even when, even when we're faithful in that process, we have to find this ability to be patient with the pace that God's timing is perfect. And then our hearts, can we just agree? They don't change easily. They don't, forgiveness, I, I can only speak for my heart, can't speak for yours, but it doesn't come easily. How about hurts and wounds from our past? They don't mend easily. But God is faithful, and that change will come. That change will come. Father, I just pray for whoever that is here tonight that's just struggling with that deep sense of frustration. Clearly, you're wanting to speak with someone tonight after what you impressed on Hannah's heart to share and what you impressed on my heart to share during worship. And we just, we just pray for calm to come over that person's life in this room right now. I just For whoever that person is, God, I, I just pray that they would have a sense that it's, it would be as if a, a weight is being lifted off their shoulders. They would have a sense that, that, that maybe they're able to take a deep spiritual breath that they haven't taken for a long time. It, it, would, it would be like that feeling of when they're carrying something heavy, like helping a friend move, and they think they're not going to make it to the truck, and then when they finally get to put it down, there's just they, they feel light. I pray that you would do that for someone here tonight. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said, amen. Hey, can we do some giveaways tonight? How about some giveaways? Yeah, you can. All right, that's a lame clap, I'm just saying. All right, just saying. Amy Kearney's birthday. Amy Kearney, a little birthday action. Hello. Yeah, turning 25. All right, and then this, I just, let me talk about it too. We have two married couples here tonight, and I want to say it's their first service here since they've been married, right? Is it your first service here? So we've got Austin and Lynn. Austin and Lynn. Nice, yeah. Yeah, and then we have Spencer and Raven, Spencer and Raven, nice, those are some goodies there from the RC Bake Sale. I told him we should have just had those tables right here during the whole service, right? I know, I'm just, next year, next year, bring in the food, you can't eat it in here, but we can, you can buy it in here, you can eat it in the hallway. Eat it in the hallway. Hey, the yard sale, we just want to encourage you to be a part of that with us uh, this coming Friday and Saturday. You can go to the church's Facebook page. Uh, there's a link where you can sign up. Um, if you've got some, even if you just have a couple of hours to give, we want to invite you to come out and join us. Can we just agree, it's not just about the work of doing the yard sale, it's being present on the property to meet people in the community. 
You tracking with me? So it's not just about the things that need to be sold, the money that's going to generate to help do some renovations here uh, in the building. You have a vested interest in that yard sale being successful because then that's less money I'm going to ask you to give when it comes to doing some of those projects. So I'm just saying if, uh, if that's your motivation. But just being here, when people from the neighborhood show up, just to talk with people, there's so many people that don't have a church to call home. There's so many people that don't have a walk with Christ. And it could be talking about selling that tea kettle, right? That you're going to have an opportunity to talk with someone about their walk with Christ. And so we hope that you'll come and be a part of that uh, with us. So we are starting a new series tonight. I'm excited uh, for this summer entitled Eden. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're just going to kind of do a little bit of introduction that's going to set up this series that's coming up this summer. Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to start reading in verse 22. Start reading in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. I'm going to talk about that if I get time to, if we get there tonight, this idea that how could God know evil if he's without sin. What, what if they reach out and take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God, listen to what it says, banished them from the garden of Eden and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim, which are angelic beings, to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Can I just suggest to you that God told mankind to get out so that when we returned, we could stay forever. God told mankind to get out so that when we returned, we could stay forever. I think many of us, we've looked at this creation story. It's the way I was taught to look at this creation story growing up. The vacation Bible schools that we went to, the flannel stories they had, the little children's Bibles that, that we've been read, that we've always been oriented to see the creation story as if God had a plan, Adam and Eve messed it up, and then they had to be punished for what they had done. But I, that's not how I see this story. I don't feel like that viewpoint of the story fits with the rest of Scripture. I believe that through this series, for some of you, it's going to change the way that you see the creation story. For some of you, it's going to change the way that you look at these first few chapters in Genesis. My belief is that when God's, it was God's plan all along to evict mankind from the Garden of Eden, that this was God's plan from the beginning. To expose mankind to a fallen world, I believe this was part of God's plan, because he was trying to equip mankind for eternal life. This series, and this, you're, you're gonna, we're going to get a vision for the Eden that was, so that we can get a vision for the Eden that is to come, so that we can find a sense of understanding for the meaning of life in the here and now. All of the stories, I posted it this week, that are given to us in Scripture are given to us so that we can understand our story, so that we can understand how we fit into his story. I wonder sometimes if we don't think of this human experience and God being our creator, that, that he's, he's managing and orchestrating his divine will, but he deals with us as a group, and he certainly does, but he also deals with us as an individual. 
God has a plan for mankind, but he also has a plan for you. God loves all of mankind, but he also loves you. He knows mankind, but he also knows you. You and I were created by God. We were given the gift of life because our story that we're living out, the story of your life as it's playing out, the choices that you're making, they are supposed to be a part of the story of God. So we're going to take a deep dive tonight. Somebody say deep dive. Into the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3. 1 through 12. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, this, the serpent asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees of the garden? Of course we can eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it, because if you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened, and as soon as you eat it, you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. This, this, right, this is, this is the, the, the vulnerability of humanity, is, is this belief that God's rules rob us of something. God's boundaries are always protecting us from harm and protecting us from settling for mediocrity. The boundaries of God, does God have a yes? He does, and he also has a no. And his no is always for our well-being. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked like Krispy Kreme donuts. Right? They looked, it looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. It's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes the sin we find ourselves in, we had good intentions to get there. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. Listen to what it says. And at that moment, at that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden. And so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, right? That's what every great man does. He blames it on someone else, usually his wife. Right? This is the birthing of marriage ministry right here in Genesis chapter 3. This is where it started. This is where it started. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. The Lord God said to you, then, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. We're going to get deeper into the curse in just a minute. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of it, but if we were to back up to Genesis chapter 2, you find the place where God says to Adam, you, you can't eat from this one tree. 
It's Genesis chapter 2, when you back up, you, you, you find the Garden of Eden before sin had entered in. You find the Garden of Eden when it was still in a place that was pristine. It was a place that, that we would say, because God says it was, that it was, it was perfect in every way. And the part that I find curious is that if it was perfect in every way, if God's description of the Garden of Eden was that it was perfect in every way, then why was there so much danger in that place? Let, let me. Who's, who's getting ready to have a baby? I know there's some people that are getting ready to have a baby, right? So how about... Nursery. You guys get in a nursery together? Not yet. Not yet. Number three for them. So when you had your first and you were, what were some of the things that you did to your home to get ready for a child? Got to plug in for the outlets. Baby bumpers around the cribs. Yep. What else? Baby monitored. If you're a two-story home, what are you getting? You're getting a baby gate, right? I know, it's amazing that those of us that are older, we survived without any of these things, right? <laughs> but, but if you're responsible as a parent, you've got to do some things to get your home safe. What are some other things? Those of you who have had kids, what did you do to childproof your home? Somebody raise your hand. Coffee? coffee? <laughs> Loaded up on coffee. Praise the name. Baby coming. Number three. Yeah, no, locks on the cabinets though, right? So when you pull it, it doesn't open. Nice, yeah. Somebody else. Somebody else, something that was done in your home. Or if you're a grandparent, before the kids could come over, something you were made to do. What about all the things that are breakable that are within reach? You with me? Yep. Everything. Go I know when we started having kids, right? I've never put up so many shelves in my life, right? Because things had to get off the floor. Things had to get out of the kids' reach. And then you, right, when you're decorating the Christmas tree, it changes the way that you live because you, you have this understanding that you have a responsibility to make the place where your children are going to be to make it safe. Within your control, you're going to remove risk from your house. How many people went and recruited strangers to hang out in your house while your kids were little? Yeah, nobody. Who does that? How about the preschool that we just opened here? How many of you think that there's knives and matches in there and we just say, you know what, kids, those are dangerous. You, you really shouldn't touch those and just hope they make the good decision, right? It's, it's, it's almost comical to think of what we haven't done because there's an intuitive sense for what it takes to make a place safe. But God made a place that he called perfect, and it's the place that we've grown up looking at as the place that we want to one day get back to, but it's really the, right, the one place that we're going to move forward towards. But in that place, God put a tree where there was forbidden fruit where they weren't supposed to eat. And if that wasn't enough, you know what else he did? He let Lucifer roam in the garden, and he gave them access he gave him access, not just to his creation, but he gave him access to his children. What kind of father would create a place and put people in it right after he created them and that he would allow someone to be in that place who is the author of all things that are evil, who would put a tree in the middle of it 
that if they were to eat it, that they would die a spiritual death. But this is the perfect place that God created. And this was all part of God's plan. I remember when I was growing up, I was probably early elementary school. I grew up in the Episcopal Church when I was little in a little town called Verina in Henrico County just outside of Richmond. And my parents uh, experienced a dramatic encounter with Christ in what was called a Faith Alive weekend. I've told this story to many of you before. And, 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 and we, we were churchgoers, but we weren't Jesus people. And I remember my parents beginning to make dramatic changes to their, to their, to their lifestyle. I, I remember as a little child standing in a kitchen chair over top of our sink, and they were just dumping bottles down the sink, and it was because they were big partiers. Doesn't mean that alcohol is a sin, but if you're using it in the wrong way, it can be, and that was part of my parents' story. And they were beginning to make changes in their life because of the changes that Jesus was making in them. And, and, and they got involved in this group that would go around traveling to Episcopal churches, teaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, these Faith Alive weekends. And some of my fondest memories as a little boy was going away on these weekends with my parents, right? Climbing around in the back of the station wagon because you didn't have seatbelts back then and, and, uh, and playing games with my sister and, and uh, in the rumble seat, right? Looking out and making faces at the cars that were behind us. And, and, uh, and there was a family that, that, that we met who lived in the Richmond area that, that became a part of those teams. And it was the Whitlow family. And Herb Whitlow, who was the dad, he was in a wheelchair. And it's the first memory that I have as a child of seeing anybody in a wheelchair. And I remember asking my mom on the way home as we were hanging out with them one night and, and uh, asking her about it and, and saying, you know, why, why, is Mr., why is Mr. Whitlow in a wheelchair? And, and, and she explained that because when he was a little boy, he uh, got sick with something called polio. And she began to explain what that was and told me that even my dad, uh, Paul, who uh, when he was a little boy, he got polio, but then he got better. But everybody that got polio didn't get, didn't get better. And now she knows, right, the first thing that I'm thinking when you're talking about a disease like this to a child, a child's thinking, I wonder if I'm going to get polio. And she could see the expression on my face. And she said, they called me Frederick going up. They, she said, Frederick, if, you don't have to worry about getting polio because you got medicine. Because sometimes when you get sick, you take medicine to help you get better, but there's also medicine that you can take before you get sick so that you'll never get sick with that. And that's what polio, you'll never have to worry about that. And I would fathom a guess that all of you who are in this room, that you don't have a friend who's in a wheelchair because of polio. Because when we're little, we get vaccinated. And, and, and we get introduced to the disease so that our body can build up a resistance because polio was still in the world, but you just don't get infected by it because you have a natural resistance to it. Now, if all of that science is new for you, then you can just watch the documentary World War Z with Brad Pitt, <laughs> and you can learn all about vaccinations and immunization. Let me read you this definition of immunization. 
It is the process whereby a person is made immune or resistant to an infectious disease, typically by the administration of a vaccine. A vaccine is a way to stimulate the body's own immune system to protect the person against the subsequent infection or disease by introducing safe levels of the disease to their body. It's fascinating, isn't it? My first real job coming out of college was at the Christian Children's Fund, an international child sponsorship agency, and, and uh, I love the work that I did there for those five years, and I love the work that even now as a church that we're doing with Food for the Hungry down in the Dominican Republic and the new relationship that we've just developed with Effective Ministries that has a ministry in Niger, Africa called Link, Leading Innovatively Niger to the Kingdom. But both of these organizations, they do evangelical work, but they also do practical work, which is so important. An estimated of 18.7 million infants worldwide are still not being reached by routine immunization services. Listen to this. And an estimated 1.5 million of those children die from preventable disease. It's one of the reasons why missions is such an important part of who we are and what we do. But as we look into this natural world, I believe that God teaches us about our spiritual life. So let me introduce you to this concept in this word. I taught on this for the first time about three years ago, but it's called the virology of humanity. The virology of humanity. Now, just as a side note, I don't know about you, but I hope that you're going to now share in my joy that whenever I read that word humanity, it makes me think of the VeggieTales barber manatee. Anybody else? Right? I know. Now, I hope that I've infected you with the barber manatee virus. When you hear that word, my kid, we play a game, and we played it a lot more when our kids were younger, but I, I'll, I'll see certain words or something will happen, it'll make me think of, a, of a, a line from a song, and so we played a game when our kids were little, is, is it real or did dad make it up, right? And so last night in the kitchen, we haven't played this game in a long time, we had a cilantro lime rice with fajitas, oh, it was delicious, come on, praise the name. And... Uh, and so when I was putting it away, I was helping Vanessa clean up, and, and, uh, uh, and so I saw the cilantro lime rice, and the, the kids were all coming back in from wherever they had been. They all had been doing stuff. And for some reason, when I was putting that, that rice away because of lime, I, I started singing that song, Put the Lime in the Coconut, right? Anybody else? And the kids were like, Dad, you're, you're, you're weird. Why would you, what would you make up songs? And I said, I didn't make that up. That's a real song. And they're like, this is just like the game we played when we were kids. So, yeah, I pulled it up on YouTube and played it for him. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a real thing. All of you right over here. It's a real song. It's a real song. Yeah. The virology of humanity. Let's talk about Lucifer, who he is, and where he came from. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, who was Lucifer, and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle. And he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent, there's a reason why the Holy Spirit inspired John writing this to refer to him as the serpent so that we would connect to the story in Genesis. The ancient serpent 
serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. So we know that before God created the Garden of Eden, before Genesis 1-1 happens and everything in the creation story unfolds, that sometime before that, we don't know the timeline, but sometime before that, there was a great rebellion in heaven. And Lucifer was able to recruit angels to participate with him in trying to overthrow God. Luke 10, 18. This is Jesus talking. Yes, he told them, listen to what it says. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus was there when it happened. Ezekiel 28, 14. I believe, as many others do, that this is a, prof, a prophetic insight into, into Lucifer's role in heaven. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. We don't even know what all of that is, but we're going to see it one day. That he was one of the angels of heaven that had the greatest access directly to God. Can you imagine? Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, again, I believe this is prophetic and speaking of Lucifer and his experience in heaven and what happened. Isaiah 14, 12 through all this PDF with all of other messages, we put them online. So all the references will be there for you if you're a note taker. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to the earth and you have been thrown down and destroyed the nations, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, here it comes, listen to this, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars and will preside on the mountain of the gods far in the north and I will climb to the highest of heavens and be like the most high. Pride. That at some point, Lucifer decides that he could be God and do what God does. Now, let me ask you this question. How convincing do you have to be to recruit angels? There's another text in the Bible that refers to a third of the angels falling with him. So a third of all the angelic beings who were in a perfect place, how convincing do you have to be to get a third of heaven to join in your rebellion? It's sobering, isn't it? And my belief is that when God set out, which is what we're given in Genesis 1, is because God was going to create a being, and that's you and me, who would one day be in heaven with him, who would not be susceptible to rebellions in the future. Now, I know for some of you, this might be turning all of our theology upside down. Welcome to the City Life Church. Is because when we read books by like Randy Alcorn, that I love, the book Heaven, who gives us this incredible description. It's like a textbook. We did a series on it years 
ago. But through that theological stream, we are led to believe that it will be impossible for sin to ever be in heaven. And my question, and I had an occasion to exchange some emails with, uh, with Randy Alcorn, and, and I just appreciated the fact that, that he responded, is, is that they never have an answer for the question. And the, in, in the, in my question is always, if you're saying that it's impossible for there, for there to be sin in heaven, then how on earth was there rebellion to begin with? Because God doesn't change. He's just as perfect as he's always. It's not as though after the rebellion, God called an emergency meeting with the two-thirds of the angels that were left and said, hey, let's, let's could you guys, I'm going to hand out these forms. Could you do just do an assessment of my leadership as the sovereign creator of the universe? I, just give me the things that I could improve on. He's perfect. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he's ever-present, but yet there was a rebellion. I believe that through that, God says, I'm going to create a, a people, a being, and they're going to be different than any other being I've ever created because what I'm going to give to them is a comparative experience. You see, as we read earlier tonight, when God said they have become like us, knowing good and evil. God was referring to the fact that the rebellion had already taken place. God didn't know evil because he had committed evil. He knew evil because heaven had been touched by evil. By Lucifer himself, one of his most important angels. And he led so many away in his rebellion. We aren't ready for the glory of heaven until we have endured this life. Because after we have suffered here, we will never want anything else but the glory that awaits us there. We aren't ready for the glory of heaven until we have endured this life. Because after we have suffered here, we will never want anything else but the glory that awaits us there. You and I are desperate for a rebellion immunization that only comes through the vaccination of suffering, getting me ready for eternal glory. See, I believe that all the suffering that we experience in this life, the hardship that we face, it's because one day when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, which I hope you've done, and if you're not, let's talk about it tonight, and that you experience the renewal, the rebirthing. We're going to get into that next week that comes through a vow of devotion to Christ that heaven has promised to you. And that between now and the last day for you, God has a plan for your suffering. He does. And that suffering, I would say, is one of his greatest gifts to each of us. Because if there is suffering that I need to endure in this life, that's going to keep me from being either the impetus of or participating in, in any other future rebellion, I want to experience all the suffering that I need to endure this side of heaven. Because I believe that once we get to the new heaven and the new earth, that there will always be the occasion and the opportunity for more rebellions, because if not, then how would there ever be free will? And free will is what makes love ultimately perfect. You see, that's why 
Heaven is a perfect place. It's perfect because of the glory of God, but it's also perfect because even a God who's all-knowing and all-powerful and ever-present, he still wants us to have the choice to choose to worship him. And when I breathe my last, I believe through the sovereignty of God that he knows all of the suffering that I need so that when I get there, that I'm going to be least likely to be a part of rebellion in the future. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong in Christ Jesus. It's interesting here, right? Paul writing to the church of Thessalonica. He doesn't say be thankful in the best of circumstances. He doesn't say be thankful in the circumstances that bring you joy and happiness and goodness. He doesn't say be thankful in the good times and be begrudging of the bad. He says, no, be thankful in all circumstances. Why? Because it's our comparative experience. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. He's not just talking about our endurance for this life. He's talking about an endurance for the life to come. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, listen to what it says. You will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. What's James? I think James is talking about our comparative experience. I think James is saying, because you will come to a point in your life where you've experienced all the suffering that you needed to, you'll be complete and we'll be ready for the eternity that awaits us. Matthew 5, 10 through 12 says, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you. There is suffering that we're going to endure in this life, and it's for our good. Listen to these verses in 1 Peter 4. I'm not going to read all of them. This is 12 through 19. Let me just read a few of it. It says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. As the band's making their way back up, listen to these verses in Genesis 3, 16 through 19. It says, Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All of your life you struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. Though you will eat of its grains by the sweat of your brow, will you have food to eat until you return to the ground? Listen to this. This is important. Until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from dust, and to dust you till will return. What's God talking about there? He's talking about how it was always his plan from the beginning that these bodies were just a place to temporarily hold the eternal part of who we are that's getting us ready for the glory that's to come. 
It's interesting, isn't it, that he says that these bodies from which we were made will return to the ground. He doesn't say all of who we are is going to return to the ground. Because when we look into the story of the creation of man, what we find is that God formed man from the dust of the earth, but he didn't become alive until God breathed in him. We're going to dig around into this next week, but just as we're coming to this close, it's important for us to understand that when we die, it's this part of us that was made from the earth that goes back to the ground, but it's the part that makes us who we are. Because of who God breathed in us to be, that's the part of us that's eternal. And it's God's hope and it's God's desire that that part of who we are, the eternal part of who we are, is going to live with him in heaven forever. And that's why he sent his son to make a way for us to find our way back to a place that is perfect. And that we are not going to, by the sovereignty of God, step through that moment until he knows that we're ready. That we've endured the hardships that we're supposed to suffer in this life so that we can step into glory. And once we get there, we'll never want anything else because we'll always remember what it was like to be here. Stand with me. Father, I pray for people that are here tonight that are going through a difficult time. I pray for the people that are here tonight that are experiencing hardship, that they, that, that they would even use the word, I'm suffering. I pray that your Holy Spirit would give them the endurance that they need. That your Holy Spirit would would give them the sense of hope that Pastor David talked about earlier, that this too shall pass. But I pray also, God, that you're going to help them see the suffering in a new light, that you're doing something in them, that you're, doing so, you're dealing with their humanity, making them ready for eternity, for the glory that awaits us all, to be able to return back to a perfect place that was once lost, but it will be regained. And when we do, we will be there with you forever. Never longing, never wondering, never curious about what life could be like outside of heaven because you have given us the gift of a comparative experience. And that once we're there, we're never going to want to be anywhere else. In Christ's name, come on, and everybody said, amen. Let's worship together.